why would you remove one segment of that population? It's not a neighborhood, it's not a village. When you take elders and you put them somewhere else in the community, that's not normal. I've never been in a neighborhood where you have people in wheelchairs, all of them. It's not natural. Community-centered living tries to knock that to pieces. Hi, everyone. This is the AgeWise Podcast. Your assumptions are going to be turned somewhat upside down. When we talk about aging well... It's an issue that nobody wants to talk about. And wisely. I was totally unfamiliar with the term caregiver. You really learn what you're capable of. I'm Jana Panaritis. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, in the year 2010, 40 million people in the United States were age 65 or older. By the year 2050, that number is expected to more than double, climbing to 88 million people who will be age 65 or older. What options for housing will this huge population of older adults have? And wouldn't it be nice if those who weren't able to remain in their homes had the option of living in a place that wasn't institutional in nature, but was physically appealing, connected to the larger community, and promoted autonomy among its residents? In America, such an innovative approach to what we often refer to as senior housing might sound too good to be true, but today's guest doesn't think so. Joe Corella is the executive director of the Scandinavian Charitable Society of Greater Boston. He's also the author of two books on elder housing. The first, published in 1995, is titled Unlimited Options for Aging, and it laid the groundwork for a unique model of living that emerged in 2001 as the Scandinavian Living Center in Newton, Massachusetts. Joe's recently published follow-up book, Creating Unlimited Options for Aging, The Path Forward, focuses mostly on the principle of community-centered living. Joe Corella joins us from Newton, Massachusetts to tell us what it's all about, what sparked his interest in housing for older adults, and much, much more. Joe, welcome to the AgeWise podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. So let's start with your personal journey, if you could sort of paint the picture for us of your Arlington, Massachusetts neighborhood growing up and the significance of the family across the street from you who mirrored yours. It's funny, the whole concept of community-centered living is based on our personal journeys. And during our own personal journeys, we come in contact with people all the time. At all ages, we meet young and old, middle age, it doesn't matter. So growing up in my neighborhood, we had tragedies. Uh, I had a family across the street that lost both parents. They had older brother that was uh, hit and killed by a truck. And that all happened within three or four years. It was tragic. And the, their youngest child was not even nine weeks when the mother passed away. But what happens is the neighborhood came together. We had, all, we had grandparents. We had probably within six or seven homes. We had over 30 children. And that neighborhood came together because there was a need. All of a sudden, this family had a grandmother trying to raise this family. And our family was across the street. Basically, we had six children. They now had six children after losing their oldest. Mm-hmm. And we all came together. But it was all the other neighbors, too. Mm-hmm. But through that, growing up in that neighborhood, there was natural connections with the elders. Mm-hmm. Because there were half a dozen to eight older folks around. And they would give bits of wisdom. And when you said hello in the morning, it's just these innocent connections, walking down the street, conversations. And there's one person I remember that I actually have taken forward with me my entire life. It was a woman by the name of Mrs. Stanley. Mm-hmm. She was actually about to move to Arizona. 
And so she used to always call me, and I might have been eight or nine years old, maybe seven, I can't remember, but she used to ask me to go up to the corner and get a half gallon of milk. So those are the things you did for your neighbors. <laughs> so one day I came into her house, and she could see I was a little upset. Now, I'm the youngest of six, so I have older siblings, all better than me, of course, at that age. <laughs> of course. I couldn't keep up with them. And mm-hmm. so she knew I was upset, and she gave me... It was a parting gift. She gave me this silver dollar, which to me at that age, I was, wow, this is the greatest thing, most valuable thing I've been given. And she looked at me and goes, Joe, this this is nice, but I'm going to tell you something right now that's going to probably be more valuable than this little dollar that I'm giving you. And of course, at that age, you're saying there's no way it could be more valuable (laughs) than a dollar. Are you kidding me? But she said to me, you know, Joe, Pay attention to your older siblings. Observe their mistakes so you don't repeat them. I said, you know, you may be the youngest, but you have the shortcuts going through life because you get to see all the mistakes. That little bit of observational wisdom stayed with me. It was a gift. It was a curse. Hmm. And I still have that coin. <laughs> wow, I'll bet it's worth a lot. It's more valuable. <laughs> more valuable. And, and it's more shiny than that dollar. Uh-huh. But what happened is as I was a teenager going through life, like everyone else, I was, I was an immature boy <laughs> at 16, 17 years old. I had goals of playing college football. Like mm-hmm. my brothers, we were the strongest in the high school. I was very, very strong, athletic. Mm-hmm. I had no interest in school. <laughs> I wanted to have a good time. Mm-hmm. So I had a crazy accident, which uh, put me into the hospital, and I tore my ACL. I had no idea what an ACL was at the time. I had no idea that that was a game changer as far as changing what I wanted to do. But more importantly, when I got to the hospital, they told me the pediatric ward was closed, so we're going to just put you up in the geriatric ward. Now, you're getting this teenager who's cocky. I'm not afraid of anything. I'm fine. And I had no idea what the geriatric ward, I had, what does that mean? It's just a, a different room, maybe. Uh-huh. And they put me on this floor filled with elders. And my roommates, one had Alzheimer's. I didn't even know what that was. I had no idea. Uh-huh. The long and the short of that experience is that and I, my room was situated so I could look down the hall. Mm-hmm. And ironically, my grandfather would pass away in that same room a year oh, later. Wow. So I always had to go back to this nightmare. Uh-huh. Talking about it, I actually still wake up with you know the nightmare that I experienced because the more I talk about it, the more it pops up into my dreams at night. Mm-hmm. But what happened four days and four nights that's it, four days and four nights I was destroyed as a person. I saw it all, I saw people in posies being ejected at night. I found out that a person I worked for had died that week, so I was experiencing death. And at the end of four days and four nights, my blood pressure was 230 over 180. I was destroyed. In fact, a a sibling didn't talk to me about it for two years because they were afraid to, because they told me afterwards, you became them. You changed. We thought we were going to lose you. And this was just a knee operation. When they say you became them, they're saying you became like the patients on the geriatric ward, frail, sickly. Frail, I was. Yeah. One thing I can Hmm. remember is talking to the director of nursing at the very last day, which was a Friday for her. Ironically, she was retiring that day. Uh And I begged her. I can remember just sweating and saying, please get me out of here. I don't know how you do it. Please get me out. And I finally, the next day, I was moved into pediatrics. And pediatrics was opened the entire week. It was just a mistake that I was put in this ward. And as I looked out the window, I remember seeing the the morgue was outside the window. The hearse was coming back and forth. And I remember looking up saying, stop, stop this. I'm done. I know what I need to do. Uh 
I grew up that week, and everything changed for me. I was focused. I needed to find a better way. And then in the book, I have incredible, crazy stories to the people you meet along the way. But that's how our journeys, they begin, and they should end that way. Moving into any type of housing, your journey in life shouldn't end because you're isolated in a building. And that's the key. And so I kept looking. And, you know, I went off to school, and I eventually landed at the Scandinavian Charitable Society of Greater Boston. And I got a grant, and I was able to go to Scandinavia and study. I think I reviewed over 60 places. That was a really interesting uh, part of the book that I would like you to elaborate on. We should say for listeners that this was part of your postgraduate work or in grad school? No, no, I I just graduated. Okay. And... I had started off with this organization. Okay, so you traveled to Denmark to study their elder care principles, their facilities, and you wrote about this, of course, in the book. I found it fascinating that you wrote quite courageously about some of the mistakes you made in asking questions, like the, asking <laughs> about the number of beds rather than the number of rooms. So tell us more about that experience. Sure. I, I mean, I went to four Scandinavian countries, and, and, and absolutely, Denmark is far ahead of everybody. Denmark, Sweden, Finland, and Norway at the time. Mm-hmm. But it hit home, because I was visiting all these places, and I would see private rooms and nursing homes. And I actually went there to look at rest homes, and they don't exist. But mm-hmm. what was fascinating with me, and, and this goes back now 60 years, Denmark was probably the poorer of the Scandinavian countries, and everybody decided, look, we have to take care of elder care. What's our solution? Some went into the direction of the medical model. Let's keep them safe. Mm-hmm. Denmark said, look, we just have to create home-like atmospheres. That's the best we can do. So by the time I got there and I was asking questions, and probably 40 years had gone by, 20 or 30 years, I would ask, so how do you feel about putting one, two, three, four people in a room in a nursing home? And they, they didn't understand the question. And they, it was, what do you mean? You do that in the United States? I said, well, yeah, we're in the nursing homes. We have two, three beds. They couldn't believe. They said, it's one of the richest countries in the world. That's what you do? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's how you house people? And that's where we need to go as a country. It needs to become, no, we don't do that anymore. And, and from that moment, that statement alone, I said, you know what? If they did it, we can do it. And when I came back to the States... And I had colleagues telling me, no, 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 Scandinavians can do it for no, no, they have high taxes, they can do it, but we, right. we can never do it with the Scandinavians. And that's how the first book got written. It was more that I thought I was writing an article, and that was a mistake <laughs> that it got published. And that's a story in itself. But I was writing an article, and my sister-in-law at the time said, Joe, stop, this is important to you, just don't put a limit on it, because, you know, I was told you can only write 12 pages, 20 pages, mm-hmm. just, just keep writing. So back then I decided I'm going to find American research to support what the Scandinavians oh, are doing, because to me it's common sense. Yeah. So that's how the first book got written. And literally, I had no idea what to do with it. And I was at an event and leaning against the wall, and someone started asking me about it. And he goes, oh, I said, oh, I don't know. I just did this manuscript. I don't know what to do with it. He asked me the title. He was a publisher. Hmm. That's how it got done. I'm not a writer. My goals have never been to write a book. It just happened. It's just part of life. You meet people, and they put you in a different direction. So the book got written, and back then I was focusing on the elder the individual person living in a facility. And 20 years later, and I was actually more excited about building the Scandinavian Living Center. I, I wasn't looking to write, but I was looking to build. And fortunately for me, I was surrounded by members of the board who were all Scandinavian. So when I would say, <laughs> we need to do this, 
they would say, of course, but my American friends would say, you're crazy, you can't do it. So I got lucky, I was with the right people. And so building the Scandinavian Living Center, using the principles of a welcoming residential setting, promoting autonomy, and allowing someone to maintain their lifestyle were the initial principles of building the Scandinavian Living Center. But in my back pocket, I had the other concept of community-centered living, but I didn't communicate it. But I saw it all over Scandinavia. Mm -hmm. I saw the attachment to the community where people would gather. And so 10 or 15 years later, someone said, Joe, you have to write about community-centered living. And I had done a a lecture, and I think it was Washington University of Maryland. And Mm -hmm. my wife later told me, a grown man in the audience started crying mm-hmm. because I was telling the story about the yo-yo. This is a great story about the yo-yo mm-hmm. show that I had here to make a point that the value of elders, the word elderly became elders at this yo-yo show I had mm-hmm. years ago. Mm-hmm. But I also saw the people on the edges of their seats getting it. They're embracing it, saying, of course, this makes a lot of sense. So community Center living, we've been doing and developing it But what changed is all the principles I wrote about 20 years ago wasn't really about an individual person. It's about the entire community, all ages. Mm -hmm. I wonder if I could just ask you to, you talk about this in the book, what defined the three principles for unlimited options for aging. You kind of set it all out. Sure, sure. That's a great question because I want to compare the two principles Uh from the difference 20 years can make. Back when I wrote about maintaining our residential reality, I was talking about deinstitutionalizing all facilities, creating a residential setting for the person moving in. Mm-hmm. 20 years later, to be part of community-centered living, that same principle of maintaining a residential reality becomes creating a welcoming residential setting for everyone. Mm-hmm. That's very important because what happens when you build a facility or redesign a facility, and this could be any type of place, independent housing, assisted living, skilled care, community care, retirement communities. You're not building a place to house people. You're building a place to gather people. That's the understanding. Mm -hmm. So what happens is you create a setting that has to be welcoming. And what community-centered living philosophy, if you're embracing it, all the principles, you improve upon it. Everything you do is improved because you have people coming and going every day. So that was the number one principle. You have to create a welcoming residential setting. Mm -hmm. Now, 20 years ago, and it became a buzzword, autonomy. You have Mm -hmm. to promote autonomy. You have to promote individual responsibility. You have to encourage people to take individual responsibility. And I was focused on the individual elder. But with community-centered living, autonomy is bigger than that. It's the entire community. Not only do the residents have to make choices to participate in the many clubs, and we can talk about how many clubs we have here and the number of people that come here a month, but the neighbors and friends have to make the same choice. They have to take responsibility to go and gather. Mm -hmm. And you and I would never want to gather in an institutional and say, this is fun. So we have to create first that environment where people want to gather, but then everyone has to take responsibility to make the choice, the decision. Mm -hmm. So that's the subtle difference. Now, 20 years ago, the third principle that's tied to community-centered living, because community-centered living is the core of all of it. But these other principles surround it. You can't do one without the other, but they work together. Mm -hmm. 20 years ago, I was thinking about maintaining your lifestyle. So again, I'm thinking of the individual person. There are hobbies and interests. You want to be able to move to a place where you can continue that. 
what community-centered living now allows us to do is look at maintaining and adding to our lifestyle for everybody, not just the people living in one of our places, but the entire neighborhood. Community-centered living enhances the surroundings, and it allows us to try different things. Mm-hmm. Not if they like bingo, that's great, but then they try different things. Mm-hmm. If they like art, they'll try movies. And those are bad examples, but they could play yo-yos here if they wanted to. I mean, it doesn't matter, but the idea is to make choices. Actually, I can't wait to do this at a presentation. I have a slide that has candy and apple and cut up fruit, and I'll focus on the fruit. I love candy. <laughs> to me, candy is an institutional thing. I like it, though. It solves a problem. I have a sweet tooth. I want the candy. But you can't have candy all the time. It's not good for you. But everyone says you should have more fruit. You should have fruit. So the cute example I can think of is my mother, who uh, sadly I lost, Mm. passed away in October. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. And unfortunately, I finished the book days after she passed away. It was one of those uh, moments. Wow. But my mother would say to me after I ate, have an apple. And I said, no, I don't feel like it, Ma. She comes back four minutes later with the apple cut up in a plate. And she's, here you go. I don't say no, but I start to eat it. In a sense, the cut up apple is community-centered living. It's different options, different opportunities. It makes it easy. Mm -hmm. We need to make it easy for people to gather it. And fruit is healthy. There's nothing wrong with the institutional idea of taking care of somebody or the candy. Uh Because it solves a problem. But that Mm -hmm. was perfect 100 years ago. And I know people are angry, oh, the nursing homes are terrible. Well, they were perfect 100 years ago. We just need to make them better. I'm talking about nursing homes, never mind assisted living. What we all need to do with our places is connect them to the community so much so that the neighborhood starts to embrace the community and and they don't want anything to happen. And here's a terrible analogy. If you don't have community-centered living and you have a beautiful building and it burns down to the ground, the first couple of days, the thing that people talk about is, is everybody okay? Did anybody get hurt? And the answer is no, 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 everybody got out. And then you forget about it. It's gone. It's like it's there, okay? But when you have community-centered living and that same thing happens, everything gets burnt down to the ground, they'll ask, is everybody safe? Did anybody get hurt? And the answer is no, no. Then the next question this is a third question with community-centered living because the question is, when are you going to build, build right. it again? We need because there's an you know, investment this, there for, for that's the community. exactly right. Yeah. I wanna, that's exactly I want to go back for a minute to the issue of autonomy because what you wrote in the book about uh, a 96-year-old really resonated for me because my mother's 89. And you wrote about this 96-year-old, quote, his will to control his autonomy was stronger than his lack of ability. And that really hit home for me because the idea is that you never, especially Americans, because we're so individualistic, you never really give up that idea that you can do something even though you know that you can. Um, So I would love for you to um, expand on the importance of reaffirming and reinforcing the right of adults to assume responsibility and I also would like you to talk about the language of care, because I think some of the language that we use, and you've talked about this in your book for readers, this is in the book in Chapter 4, uh, where you talk about embracing autonomy. You talk about the different ways of talking to older adults, encouraging responsibility for self versus encouraging the staff to take care of you. Well, when we talk to people at the Scandinavian Living Center, we say we assist you to be independent. 
even though they need our help. We really want them to have that mentality. We want them to feel that they can take responsibility to make decisions. And I think I write somewhere in the book, if you feel good, come to me. If you feel bad, you need to come to me. But you need to come to me. Uh So the key is people need to feel like they can take responsibility. And it's difficult. I could be in the industry 100 years, and I can be surrounded by elders, but it's still difficult when it's a loved one that I'm making decisions you don't agree with. But you want them to be safe. It's a very difficult thing, but, but that's why autonomy goes both ways. Everyone has to be encouraged to take responsibility for themselves and responsibility for honoring and dignifying someone else's decisions, good or bad. You made me remember something. I don't know if I was in Sweden or Denmark, but the nursing homes, a lot of them had balconies. They had private rooms and studios, but they also had patios and balconies. And as an American, I remember saying to the administrator, why would you have a balcony? You're afraid someone's going to jump out, right? right? He looked at me and he goes, well, it's their decision, isn't it? So why are you going to build an institution when you this is the right thing to do? And that's that mentality. I mean, of course, you don't want people to be jumping off a balcony, but you're telling them, take responsibility. We're going to do the right thing. We're going to design so it's as residential as possible. But at the end of the day, you still have to take responsibility like you do from when you're growing up through life. You have to make decisions, good or bad. You have to live with the consequences, but they're your decisions. Uh We can try to protect you as much as possible, but at the end of the day, you have to move forward. And we can only try to make that as easy as possible for you. We have to give you the opportunities to, when we built the Scandinavian Living Center, we made it 100% handicap accessible. That sounds like common sense 20 years later, but when I was suggesting it, I was crazy. You, know, you don't have to do that. You only have to have 5%, but we're going to double it. And I can remember saying, I don't want to do this project anymore. And they finally would come back and say, okay, you can be 100%. But I had to fight for common sense. You and had to that, fight for common sense. That just sounds so I, funny. <laughs> isn't it? It's strange. Uh-huh. And thank goodness I was surrounded by Scandinavians saying, of course, that makes sense. <laughs> the other thing is I had seen washer dryers in nursing home units in the studios. And I said, well, that's brilliant. Uh-huh. It's so residential. So I came back and we're building an assisted living. I said, well, I want washer dryer hookups. Uh-huh. They fought me on that. They said, Nobody does that in this country. We don't put washer-dry hookups in assisted living. I said, well, I'm not thinking about this country. I'm thinking about what I saw in Scandinavia, and that's what I want. Mm -hmm. I fought for six months to get that. I don't know where the energy came from, Mm -hmm. but it was like, that's just part of autonomy. Mm -hmm. They now have a choice, just like you and I, to do laundry at home. In this case, they can walk down the hall and do their laundry for free. We don't Mm -hmm. even charge them. But people still install their washer-dryers just so they can do their own Uh personal laundry. You put in place choices. You encourage responsibility, but you can't take responsibility if you don't have a choice. Mm -hmm. So what do you say to someone who says autonomy can't work with dementia patients? It's too risky. Well, it's a challenge. I love the community. I think there's one in the Netherlands that they're building an entire community and city and town for dementia. Oh, yeah, I think I've read about that. Right. Yeah, and, and that's thinking out of the box. I think you have to create a safe environment, but it doesn't have to be an institution. You have to tie them down. They can walk and wander. And and obviously, there are people in the wheelchairs. There's no cookie-cutter answer to any of this. Mm -hmm. When you talk about community-centered living, it's what's right for the community, what's right for the city and town. If you try to regulate community-centered living, you've destroyed it. 
that what you're trying to do is get all people together and exposure, and there's been studies on this, I don't know, I think it was Princeton University, when you expose people to different things, they get used to it. I can't remember the study, but I think it was mm-hmm. someone, they put a person in a room and they had someone look at them through a two-way mirror because they were afraid to look at somebody. And I can't remember if the person was pregnant. They, they were afraid to talk to them. while it, I, can't, I can't remember what the example was, but at the end of the day, when you bring people together, and, and that was an issue here. Yeah, how did that go? How, how did you engage okay. the community? Well, that was, even myself and board members, and, we're, and they're Scandinavian, would say, well, why would someone want to come to uh, an assisted living? And I would say, well, we have a cultural center here. They would come because they're coming to a program. I said, the last thing we want to try to do is promote the assisted living. We don't need to. Let them find out they're coming to an assisted living uh, after the fact. A little bait and switch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then let them discover, just like when they're here, they're going to discover there's a cultural yeah. center. Yeah. But it's just, you just let it happen. And right. what, what started to happen, huh. and this is the, the, the gift of community-centered living, neighbors would come to a function. And they would meet up after not seeing each other for over 20 years. They would meet up at a cultural center event (laughs) inside a traditional assisted living. Those are the miracles. Those are the things that happen when you bring people together. Hmm. So put that anywhere in in a nursing home setting. As long as people take responsibility to choose to come to an event, because you and I do it all the time. Hmm. I don't want to go to this concert, but I'll go to that concert. I don't want to go to that lecture, but I'll go to this one. You have to cut up the fruit. You have to give options for the entire population. If you came here, you and I would go to an event, we'd buy a ticket. Residents go for free. That's the only exception. They get to go for free Mm -hmm. to everything that we have here. Mm -hmm. So the center sounds really pretty fancy. You know, you've got your state-of-the-art fitness center. You've got a coffee shop. How was the design and building of the center funded? And do you get any government reimbursements? No, we're a small nonprofit organization. I mean, we do subsidize people, and we had a little bit of what do you call it, Medicaid, maybe called uh-huh, Cooper Foster. Uh-huh. Yeah, to help us. I mean, we can't afford to take so many people because we only have forty apartments. Right. So we, it's forty apartments, and does it cost it, a different amount for the residents to live there? Is it like a sliding scale? It, How expensive is it? Well, here's the thing. When you look around the Boston area, and this is the Boston area, I think our rate is one of the lowest. Uh-huh. I mean, we're a charitable nonprofit organization. Uh-huh. We can have a certain number of people that we can take care of and subsidize. Now, when we're building the Scandinavian Living Center, and I tell this to the nonprofit world, what makes us a little bit different, we can do anything we want. We can dream big because all we have to do is get the community to embrace our dream and our mm-hmm. goal. Mm-hmm. And then they come and help and we raise funds for it. There's mm-hmm. grants out there. So everything we do, we try to raise funds for it. It's a very simple design. It's based on a Danish design where all the housing surrounds a courtyard. So when you open your door, you see nature. And in fact, it's an, an indoor track. So people can walk 13 times around as a mile. Right. Those are the single loaded corridors that you refer to, right? Where you have right. a, a wall on one side and a window on the other. So you're always looking outside when you're walking. Yes. That's just beautiful. Sounds beautiful. And we have, I was going to mention the pop-up cafe. Okay. What I like about when you get people to gather, and you don't think about any segment of the population. You just focus on getting people together. I've been here on a Saturday, and I ask, what are you doing here today? Oh, I'm meeting up with a friend. <laughs> like, uh-huh. okay, you, you have no relationship here, and uh-huh. you're meeting up with a friend at the cafe. Instead of going to a, a, a coffee shop or a tea shop, they come here. 
Can you imagine what it would be like in all the cities and towns if people went to a nursing home and assisted living, independent housing to gather and have coffee or tea? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm what still does, trying to get my mind around it. <laughs> it's cra- I know. It's, it's amazing. But what happens is we get over 2,000 visitors a month, and that's not counting the family and friends wow. that visit their loved ones, because we have to visit loved ones. Mm-hmm. But I've had loved ones come to an event here and not visit their loved one, because they want to come to something else. Uh-huh. <laughs> and think this through. When you have people gathering in your facility, do you really need to be regulated? It's almost like having the state there every day. What community-centered living philosophy does is it encourages you to be better because you could build a beautiful castle in the sky. If you're isolated, where's the motivation to fix your building, make it better? There's no motivation. Uh-huh. If there's a hole in the wall, you walk by it a couple of days before you decide to fix it. But if you know 2,000 people are coming, 1,000 people are coming into your place to gather, you're going to keep it updated and as nice as possible mm-hmm. because they are the state, the consumers the visitors that are coming and going, they still want a welcoming place. And it's changed me. I look at things differently because I know that over 2,000 people are coming in here every mm-hmm. month. So I have to stay on my toes. Mm-hmm. And it's a good thing. And some part of it is probably regulated because it has to be, right? Or Oh, or no, no, no. You have yeah. to have. Yeah. I'm not, right. yeah. yeah. But yeah. I mean, it makes it easier, I uh-huh. think. So what sort of obstacles have you run up against more recently in this sort of drive to demand change that you're, you're pursuing? Well, I think people have a hard time and they'll say, I have, an, I have a building that's 100 years old. I can't. I don't have enough land. You just started from scratch. Well, yeah. yes and no. I had a, an old-fashioned retirement home. We just happened to have a little bit of land and we just renovated and we mm-hmm. rebuilt. Mm-hmm. But that's where partnerships need to happen. We're going to go into the next 100 years where you can't survive alone. You have to have some type of collaboration, vertical, horizontal partnerships. And sometimes you may have to close a place and move it somewhere else. You have to work with the communities, the neighbors, the cities and towns to make this change. Because what it comes down to is how do we build a place to help the neighbors and the communities to gather? How can we help all the clubs? And then you say, okay, let's add the housing oh, let's add the skilled housing or whatever housing type you need to Mm -hmm. add. When you do that, I think you can solve any problem. You can't force it on people, but the people who will force change will be the consumers that have this new observational wisdom. Uh I think you and I and people for the past 100 years have had this observational distortion. We have been in these old places, we've seen these institutions, and we've seen that once you go in, you're isolated from the rest of the community. Mm -hmm. And then the people living inside these places, these institutional settings, consider their neighbors across the street, even if they could throw a stone and hit their window, the outside community. Yeah, right. That's not right. Community-centered living tries to knock that to pieces. Mm -hmm. And that's a distortion that's just developed over the past century and we need to change that. There's no outside community. <laughs> There's neighbors. And the only thing I would add to that is when you have a neighborhood, a village, and if you all believe that it takes all of us to raise a child even, or to keep us all safe, why would you remove one segment of that population? It's not a neighborhood. It's not a village. When you take elders and you put them somewhere else in the community, that's not normal. I've never been in a neighborhood where you have people in wheelchairs, all of them. It's right. not natural. 
Right. I thought you made a really interesting point in the book about beautiful club-like settings for older adults <laughs> and how they, too, promote isolation. And they are institutional in a way that I hadn't really thought about. I think people are trying to find the answers, but what we tend to do is build a place that appeals to the children. You walk in, you say, boy, this is fancy. And it is, and it's nice. The children are looking at it, boy, I want my loved one. To, I want my children, mother. I want right. my, the adult children, I'm sorry. Right. So that's the trick. As a consumer, you have to ask, well, this is nice, but where's the neighbors? Where's the neighborhood? Are, are they coming and going? And that's why it could be beautiful. It could have a residential setting, but if you're not connected to the community, to me, it's still institutional thinking because a lot of people will have an event to attract the public. Community setting living is not a marketing concept. It's a gathering concept. Huh. And when you look at places, you have to ask, are you connected to the community? How many community groups do you have meeting in your place? How many opportunities for me to connect to other humans are there in this place? As opposed to how fancy is that chair over there? It's not that. It's how connected will my loved one be if they're here? Uh-huh. Will they be isolated? I don't know about you, but if I was in a beautiful castle isolated, I would be isolated. Well, you know, there's and I would a pl- be lonely. Are you familiar with the villages in Florida? Oh, yes. Well, so, that so that's the first thing that yeah. I thought about because it's wildly uh, popular among the people who live there, and it's really like its own town. Something about it is like a Disney World for older adults. Right, I went to exactly. visit friends there, uh-huh. and it's and it's it's beautiful, but it's uh-huh. not natural because where are the children and why would you separate all that beautiful wisdom and experience from the kids and the kids come and visit but it's just it's artificial believe me the downtown is great but someone once asked me would you bring your family to a community of elders and i would say and they all know they would say to me no family would want to move there and i would say no my family would all it takes is one person to say of Uh course i would want to live in this community Uh and then another family comes along because what we're trying to do is create these artificial neighborhoods, and it just doesn't make sense to me. It's still isolation. It's still isolation. Isolation. Yeah. This idea of separating older people from the rest of society <laughs> is so ingra- it's so deeply ingrained. Ageism, I've read, is the most deeply ingrained prejudice. So, you know, you're fighting a mindset, really. I'm very aware of that, and I agree with you. That's the mindset that has to change. And when you bring people together the children start to look at elders differently. Uh And I have a wonderful story in the book about that yo-yo show. There was a yo-yo that was made by a gentleman, a resident. It's 90 years old. He has since passed away, but the family gave me his yo-yo. So I have a 90-year-old yo-yo that's fantastic. It's better than the yo-yos I was giving out at the show. Uh But why it's important to me, just like that silver coin, the yo-yo represents my first time I understood that the elderly became elders once you expose them to the children. They weren't elderly anymore because the children at that yo-yo show, and this is a show that we did where we brought this couple in. They were just doing all this magic stuff with yo-yos, and we gave free yo-yos to all the children. I mean, we sold out. We had to turn people away. Hmm. Residents were there. Grandparents were there. And this was at the center? At the center. Uh It was just a crazy thing to do. Uh What it did for me was I saw this gentleman who was a Dunkin' Yo-Yo champ in the 1950s. So he started playing with the yo-yos, and the children started looking at this older person as, wow, look at this hero of ours doing this in front of us. And then we had this 90-plus-year-old resident come with this homemade, carved-out yo-yo, and his yo-yo was better than all the yo-yos, brand new, that I was giving away. And it just saw the shift, this whole mentality shift, that the children weren't hanging out with sick, 
elderly, quote, quote, people, Mm -hmm. but rather they're elders. And that's where we need to go back to, the elders, the older folks. And this is just the way it is through time. They know more than us. They've had more experiences. And if my child could hear a story from an elder that could change the way they think, that's important. When I wanted to teach my son, I knew he wouldn't listen to me. So I would go to my father and say, Dad, can you tell him this? Can you say this to him, please? So my father would say whatever I would suggest, and my son would come back to me and say, you know, Papu is brilliant. (laughs) He's so smart and wise. And that's what the older folks do for us, because there's no discipline there. The grandparents, the older folks are the friends of our children. They can help us raise children. It's a gift that people are hiding away. I don't want to hide it away anymore. And yes, I would move my family in any retirement community with young children. To me, what a gift. They would be spoiled. So when you become an older adult, do you see yourself living in a place like the center? I can only live at a place that's connected to the community. When my son was put into my hands, my first thought was I can't wait to be a grandfather because I understood the responsibility of raising a child because I just understood immediately. I mean, I fell in love with my son. But then I said, when I'm a grandfather, I'm going to send my grandchildren home with candy in their mouth because I don't care. I'm going to be their best buddy. Uh I don't have to discipline them. Uh I'm going to give them (laughs) my experiences. But I'm absolutely, I'm going to introduce them to the candy. (laughs) So being a grandparent, and I'm not, believe me, I'm encouraging the children. (laughs) But being a grandparent is a gift. And the ability to give back to society, that should never stop. That should never stop. We should uh-huh. always be working. No one should be retiring. It's called semi-retirement because life is work, and it should never stop. It's our journey. And I don't want to stop it once they move in. They go through the front doors of the Scandinavian Living Center. Their journey should continue until the very, very, very end. Uh-huh. And along the way, they should be meeting people and connecting with people of all ages. I was going to ask how you stay positive in this difficult sort of aging space, but it sounds like you're doing a pretty good job of it. It's hard for folks who are on the outside to think, oh, how is this going to work? You know, how this is a pipe dream. I, I'm just playing devil's advocate here. No, no, I, and I appreciate that. They just need to visit and experience it. People think I have this passion. It's more of a phobia. Uh-huh. I just don't want to go back to that institutional setting. Uh-huh. I've been there. I didn't have to wait till I was 90 or 85. I don't want to go back. I don't want you to go there. I don't want our loved ones to go there. I think everybody can do what we're doing better. I want to challenge the entire industry to understand that community-centered living is not a marketing thing, but rather a good thing to bring people together. Uh And they're consumers too. Industry leaders are consumers. And I can't imagine that there's anyone out there that wants to live in an isolated, lonely institutional setting. Maybe there's a person out there that wants to be alone. I just can't imagine that. Mm -hmm. You do talk about some of the other model communities in the United States that you admire. I wonder if you could talk about some of the other ones that you like, that you see that maybe people can explore. Sure. No, I mean, there's a wonderful places here in Massachusetts, but we all know Dr. Bill Thomas. Bill's a great guy. He's created a nursing home that's just, it's almost perfect. The only thing, and I had seen him a couple of summers ago, and he was frustrated that he felt like the industry wasn't listening. And it was there that I said, you know, if you embraced community-centered living, you'd bring people to your nursing homes to gather. He has great model. There's a place, the Leonard Center for Living, Leonard Florence Center for Living mm-hmm. here in Massachusetts that I write about Elizabeth Seaton, mm-hmm. uh, residents in Wellesley. They're all private rooms. And in fact, 
the board of uh, the Sisters of Charity, they're embracing community-centered living. They like the idea of bringing people together at their place. And I'm just going to stick with the nursing homes for a second. If these great nursing homes were out there gathering people to come into their places, the common spaces get created, and people are coming to look at their nursing homes, then the consumers are going to want that and demand that. It's nice to build a model, but you have to get people to gather there. You can't just do a tour every once in a while. Mm -hmm. You have to have people coming and going and thinking nothing of it. You need to have them want to be there. So I think the great places that have been innovative, the nursing homes that have really become a residential setting, can take the whole industry to the next level by gathering people in their places. To some people, that sounds crazy. Oh, how can we possibly? Why would someone come to a nursing home? And I say to them, do you understand that just sitting on a gold mine, you have one of the nicest places? I would gather here. In fact, I got married at a nursing home. Right, uh, you wrote said, about that too. That's a great story. Yeah, my mother-in-law was at Elizabeth Seat. I got married there and thought nothing of it. And it was mm-hmm. such a great experience. I felt like a rock star because I didn't know that we were in this <laughs> courtyard and the residents and everybody was surrounding us. And uh-huh. I didn't know because, of course, I was focused on something else. Uh-huh. But they had pictures. They gave me a book of pictures. I didn't ask for it, but they got into it. Uh-huh. And it was almost like they embraced just connecting to something natural. Yeah. And it was a great experience. And so that's just one thing. But it's a mindset that has to almost shift or change a tiny bit. There's nothing wrong with gathering. And I keep saying nursing home, and here we have a beautiful uh, traditional assisted living. But there's nothing wrong gathering in these beautiful places. As long as they're welcoming, you should be able to gather there. And then when you gather, you create this observational wisdom. And over time, an entire housing industry can change in a positive way. I don't believe in forcing anything. I just believe in creating a demand that encourages us to be better. Better Mm -hmm. people, better designs, better buildings. There's nothing wrong with that, but you need an example. Mm. You need to put good examples out there. I'll bet the families of these residents at your uh, center are probably just bowled over. It's funny. I had my mother and father living here, and I became Mm. a family member for the first time, and Uh it changes everything. You appreciate the staff. Uh I mean, I appreciate the beautiful design. Uh, My Uh father could walk two miles a day Uh because he was a walker. But I appreciate the people that are involved, the Mm -hmm. caregivers, and and we underappreciate what they do. I'm the least important person in this building. I feel honored to be surrounded by people who care for the elders and the family members. We have a family group that we're trying to put together, and the family's going to run it. And what I need to tell them is, I want you to come together to help make this a better place, but I also want to make a place for you to gather. Because what's happened is the family members never happened before. I could be with them for 10 years. Their loved one could be living here for 10 or 15 years. And once their loved one moved out, either passed away or went to a nursing home, I'd never see the family member again. Mm-hmm. I'm seeing the family members now because they're coming back for something else. There's huh. nothing to do. And it, they don't have a family member living there anymore. No, they're right. coming to a, a club. Just to hang out. Uh-huh. To be part of a club. I mean, there's over 30 clubs here. We have an outpatient physical therapy company. We, uh-huh. we have a lot of different things. It's the apple sliced up, (laughs) making it easy for people to come back. Uh So my relationships, my friendships with the family members continues. Uh And that was hard. I mean, it was hard to lose the resident, but it was harder to lose a friend, a family member who became a friend over the years. Yeah, I I mean, it's those two neighbors who are in the same neighborhood who never saw each other for 20, over 20 years who met up here. And I just kind of love to see them. I love to see family members I haven't seen in a year or so come back. Because it's very hard to go back. Yeah. 
Well, listen, I want to give you the opportunity to offer any last thoughts before we go. Well, I feel that the book that was just written is filled with personal stories, but more importantly, it is a simple read. Mm-hmm. It gives the principles. It make, I hope it makes it easier for people to understand. And I end, I think, in the, the end of the book, I say 50% of the people are smarter than me. The other 50% just have no idea that they are smarter than me. And it's a simple concept that needs to be embraced. If we want change, if you want to prepare yourself for aging and living with your neighbors, you need to believe in what we're trying to do here. This shouldn't be one example. There should be thousands across the country. And it can be done. And it can be done because people come together. People gather to solve a solution. When people come together, anything can be done. We've been speaking with Joe Corella. He's the executive director of the Scandinavian Charitable Society of Greater Boston, which, through its Scandinavian Living Center, provides older adults with the assistance they need to lead fulfilling, connected, and culturally rich lives. You can learn more about the center and Joe's book, Creating Unlimited Options for Aging, The Path Forward, by visiting the center website, which is S as in Sam, L as in learning, center.org, slcenter.org. And of course, we'll have links on the AgeWise website to Joe's book and the center. Joe, thanks so much for being on the show and for the amazing work that you're doing. I know that I'm going to stop by the center the next time I'm in the Boston area. So I look forward to seeing it. Thank you very, very much. That's it for today. Thanks for joining us. If you like this show, please tell your friends and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to check out some of our other episodes. Head on over to agewise.com. That's A-G-E-W-Y-Z.com. And use our search feature to discover some great conversations with guests who talk about issues of specific interest to you. You'll get tips, find links to useful information, and best of all, know you're not alone. The AgeWise podcast is produced by me, and it's distributed on the nationally syndicated Speak Up Talk radio network. I'm Jana Panaritis. See you next time. And remember, every caregiver has a story. I want to hear yours.